0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Jeff Begays, and this is America Change Forever. On this episode, we're going to look into the abortion ban in Texas now that a federal court judge blocked what's called SB8. The law essentially empowered people to sue abortion providers and anyone who helps them. We'll speak with Supreme Court expert Dahlia
1: Lithwick. The law doesn't have anybody to sue. Nobody can be enjoined because no state actor is preventing abortion. It's just that everybody else gets a bounty uh, for suing uh, if an abortion occurs. So this evades that problem because the United States is a unique plaintiff in that it can sue An entire state. And it can do so to effectuate constitutional rights that are being violated.
0: Also in this episode, tough week for Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg. His social media empire coming under fire as a whistleblower reveals company secrets. First in a CBS News 60 Minutes interview.
2: Moral bankruptcy is an opportunity for Mark, for
1: Facebook, to come in and say, we completely messed up. Some of it's our fault. Some of it's not our fault, but we have gone in so far over our heads that we need a reset. Because if they don't do that thing,
2: they're just going to continue to get worse. And the process is just going to reinforce and reinforce.
0: And then on Capitol Hill.
2: Facebook understands that if
1: they want to continue to grow, they have to find new users. They have to make sure that that the next generation is just as engaged with Instagram as the current one. Um, And the way they'll do that is by making sure that children establish habits before they have good self-regulation. By hooking kids. (laughs) By hooking kids.
0: But first, let's begin with the Supreme Court. I know what you're thinking. Boring. But trust me on this. The Supreme Court is going to take up some controversial issues in the coming months, and that's, that's an understatement. And you're going to want to pay attention to what Dahlia Lithwick, who writes for Slate, has to say not only about SB-8 in Texas, but also when it comes to what's ahead for the Supreme Court. Dahlia, the Supreme Court has never been under the type of scrutiny it is seeing now. Let's talk about that. But first, let's discuss Texas's abortion ban, SB-8. A judge stepped
1: in and blocked SB-8. Tell us what happened. Right. This was a a very late uh, breaking decision that came on Wednesday night. Judge Robert Pittman, who is a federal district court judge in Texas, who actually had been hearing this lawsuit until quite literally the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals just told him to stop and allowed the ban to go into effect on September 1st. So Judge Pittman, uh, then received, and I think we talked about this when last we spoke, um, a, a, a urgent petition from the Biden Justice Department saying, now we want you to enjoin it. After the Supreme Court declined to stop SB8, the Justice Department essentially filed a petition with the same Judge Pittman saying, we are not asking you... Uh, as anything other than the United States of America to stop the state of Texas from doing this. So In some sense, the standing problems that are created by the law, because as I think we talked about, the law doesn't have anybody to sue. Nobody can be enjoined because no state actor is preventing abortion. It's just that everybody else gets a bounty uh, for suing uh, if an abortion occurs. So this evades that problem because the United States is a unique plaintiff in that it can sue an entire state, and it can do so to effectuate constitutional rights that are being violated. Last Friday, Judge Pittman had a a quite lengthy hearing where he heard both from Justice Department lawyers and from lawyers for the state of Texas. And in this order on Wednesday night, which is 113 pages, so he is a fast, fast writer, uh, replete with footnotes, he enjoined SB 8. He not only said that This thing is no longer operative, but he said every single state uh, judge and court in Texas needs to put up on their website (laughs) that the thing cannot go forward. So it couldn't have been, in some sense, a stronger rebuke. And clearly at the heart of his problem with SB-8 is that it was designed to have no judge review it. And for him, uh, as he concludes in his order, that is an intolerable situation if people are losing their constitutional rights by the day.
0: You write that Pittman illuminates the rolling crisis for Texans who remain in dire need of abortion care.
1: He, um, in every single footnote, and as I said, the footnotes almost are the beating heart of this opinion. In his footnotes, he talks about what it has been like and how catastrophic it has been. you know. He describes a, a minor who was raped by a family uh, na- uh, member. This SB-8 has no exceptions uh, for rape and incest, who has to go to Oklahoma uh, to get care. So he, in some sense, is painting a picture of the massive hardship for people who, again, live in a country where Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, are good law, and abortions up till 24 weeks, that's the viability line, um, are supposed to be constitutionally permissible. And yet, boom, with the stroke of a pen uh, at midnight uh, on September 1st, they suddenly cannot procure abortions. And so there's this funny split screen where in the opinion itself, the judge is explaining the doctrine. He's explaining why the Justice Department has standing and why uh, this meets the standard for an injunction. It's very, very lawyerly. And then in these rich, Fulsome footnotes. He is explaining the proportion of pregnant people who live in poverty in Texas, who already have children, who cannot possibly afford to feed another children, uh, who are dealing with severe uh, uh, fetal anomalies, whatever the the. Life stories that the U.S. Supreme Court ignored when it issued its one paragraph, page and a half order saying we're not hearing this case. All of that really suffuses the footnotes in Judge Pittman's order.
0: How often do we see a lower court that is critical of a decision that the Supreme Court made?
1: I mean, you see it. You see it uh, increasingly, I would say, often in the polarized times that we live in. And so, for instance, we've seen lower court judges for years now, uh, particularly some of Donald Trump's very, very uh, abortion opposing judges, extremely critical of the Supreme Court in their writings and willing to say Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided or willing to say Obergefell, that was the marriage equality case, was wrongly decided. And, and so you do see that kind of very polemical um, Mistrust of the Supreme Court. What is interesting in this is that in his concluding paragraph, um, Judge Pittman goes so far as to say, more or less, you know, I'm probably going to get reversed here. I am well aware uh, that this could go wrong, but I can't countenance another day in which women in Texas uh, are prevented from having a legal uh, 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 Abortion. And so he has this amazing language where he says from the moment SB 8 went into effect, women have been unlawfully prevented from exercising control over their lives in ways that are protected by the Constitution. This court will not sanction one more day of this offensive deprivation of such an important right. And so there's a strange way in which he's not just criticizing the Supreme Court for sloppy shadow docket opinion writing that allowed SB 8 to become law, but he's actually kind of planting a flag and saying, as long as I'm sheriff, (laughs) you know, I know this may not go well, but as long as I'm the boss for this brief moment women in Texas need to be able to obtain abortions. And so it's, there's this almost kind of creed occur where he's just saying, this is what I can do. And I don't, I can't control what other judges do, but this is what I can do today. And it is very personal and quite visceral.
0: We've been hearing a lot about SB8 in Texas for several weeks now. It's one of those big stories that the media has been following. So how much longer do you think this is a case that's going to be making its way through the federal court system.
1: Well, that is a good question. Uh Texas has said they are already going to appeal the order, the Wednesday night order to the 5th Circuit and we should note that the 5th Circuit already uh has refused to enjoin it. So, we can guess that the 5th Circuit will probably Remove the injunction, then there's a question about whether and how it makes its way back up to the Supreme Court for a second bite at the apple. Uh, and as all this is unfolding, of course, the court is going to be hearing this Dobbs case, that's the Mississippi abortion ban, on its regular docket that's already scheduled for December 1st. So, in a strange sense, now we almost have a foot race between these two different, very, very different laws in two states, each of which in very fundamental ways intersects with one another because they both in some ways go to the heart of whether Roe v. Wade is still good law. And we're all going to be left to watch what gets decided first and how. I think that there's some folks who believe that the Supreme Court are just going to, in regular order in December, hear the Dobbs case, the Mississippi case, which is a 15-week ban as opposed to Texas's six-week ban. And that will, in some sense, determine the future of SB8. But it is, I think, very clear that What Judge Pittman did last night was give such a principled reasoned kind of fact-based record to the court a way of saying now you can't pretend that this isn't impacting real people and having real effects on the ground that it'll be harder i think than it was last go round for the court to just wave this away so there's a lot of urgency and as we're saying um the court is under a real microscope this term so it is in some sense in the court's uh interest to do something about SB8 on the second round, whether they do or whether they just wait it out. I'm not quite sure.
0: The Supreme Court this past Monday resumed in-person oral arguments for the first time in 19 months. What we're hearing with the cases on the docket is that this is going to be, or at least it's expected to be, a politically fraught new term. Why do people anticipate Supreme Court-style fireworks?
1: Well, I think that the best answer to that is that this would have been a really high octane term, even absent all the stuff that we've been talking about. So even without the drama of SB8 playing out in September, even without four of the justices in the last few weeks giving very, very... Uh, I would say, out over their skis, speeches, insisting that all the politics notwithstanding the court is not political. Even if all of that hadn't been happening, we would have been heading into a term that, as I referenced, already had abortion on the docket, and not just abortion, but Mississippi is asking, in the Dobbs case, for the court to just swing big and overrule Roe v. Wade once and for all. So it is sort of an existential abortion case. On the docket. There's a major guns case on the docket that is going to um, really, really potentially expand the scope of what individual right to bear arms means. And it would not only really push beyond the scope of what the Second Amendment currently protects, which is gun ownership in the home, but allow folks. To, to, to leave their home, to carry weapons, uh, which would really unsettle a lot of state licensing regimes. So that's on the docket. We've got religious liberty back on the docket. We've got um, affirmative action possibly coming onto the docket and, you know, a whole bunch of, I suspect, COVID vaccine uh, objectors are going to show up. So this is one of those powder keg terms. And in a lot of ways, the unforced error of both mishandling, I think, SBA and then having these very, very partisan fraught speeches by individual justices has dialed it up even higher, which is why I think you were right when you started. Um, I have not seen in my two decades of covering the court a term that has opened this fractiously and this this sort of degree of anxiety on the part of the justices about what the public thinks of the court.
0: Public approval ratings for the Supreme Court are in the tank. I guess they're in the tank like every other branch of government.
1: Well, I think that's the good news, right? The good news is even though they're in the tank, they still are somewhat higher than other branches of government. But By the court's own standards, and certainly in the history of the Gallup poll, for instance, the court has never had rankings this low. And interestingly, that's across the board. That's not just uh, Democrats who don't like what the court did on the shadow docket this summer. It seems that there's just that general public malaise about mistrust of institutions has really leached into the court. And I think a lot of Republicans are very angry that the court, for instance, didn't take part in Donald Trump's uh, request that they set aside the 2020 election. So this is weirdly bipartisan court hatred. And... Um the numbers are not only historically low, but they've dropped really quickly over just a few months. And so the court, and this is the part where, you know, the civics lesson kicks in, which is the court doesn't have an army, and the court doesn't have, you know, a a police force. And if the American public stops believing in the court, simply refuses to accede to court decisions. There's absolutely no mechanism, constitutional or otherwise, for the court to enforce its will. And, you know, one of the things that Justice Stephen Breyer, who's just got a brand new book out about this and is talking about this on all the shows, keeps saying is the miracle of Bush v. Gore uh, was that the American public didn't agree with the court decision and yet they agreed to live with it. That is the miracle of the American belief in and respect for the court. And so when the court loses public esteem, it's not the same as Congress or the executive. It's not the same as any other government institution losing public esteem. Because Every other institution has other mechanisms to protect themselves. The court has nothing to protect itself other than the public conviction that that what they are doing is law. And that is why I think you're seeing this immense blowback, including, by the way, Justice Alito giving a speech last week at Notre Dame, really punching back on the idea that there's this nefarious shadow docket of late night orders. I think the justices are more anxious about their legitimacy than I have ever seen.
0: Is it that the media is focusing more on what these justices are saying publicly or is it that the justices are going
1: public more often? I think it's both. I think that historically um, when the court is quietest. Uh, public regard for the court rises, and whenever the court does things that seem very partisan or political. So I'm thinking now of, for instance, Bush v. Gore, or uh, the Shelby County decision when the court uh, kind of cut out the heart of the Voting Rights Act, or Or um, Citizens United, when the court set aside uh, campaign finance uh, laws, that's when public regard for the court really plummets. Uh, It almost doesn't matter if it's to the right or the left. The American public gets very, very, very anxious when the court starts to wade into what looks like partisan politics. I think actually that's the reason the court did not get involved in Donald Trump's election litigation. But I also think it's true that. This term, again, I haven't seen until this term, I think, as many mainstream journalists previewing the coming, you know, calendar and the docket and what's coming up spend as much time on the things you and I are talking about, whether it's SB-8 or the so-called shadow docket, these late-night unsigned orders, uh, or the public uh, opinion polls, that stuff is all leaching into the court coverage. And again, I think it's it's because there's a court horse question of whether the court is bringing this upon itself or whether uh, the media scrutiny is really hyper-focusing people on an institution that's otherwise pretty opaque. I think in some sense, that's not super useful for the justices to blame the press, because what the justices have done this summer is really unprecedented in terms of really, really big swings that are happening uh, on a late-night docket that nobody understands.
0: My public rating of you, Dahlia, is 99%. I really enjoyed talking to you about these Supreme Court issues. Thanks so much for your time.
1: I, I am so grateful to be here, and I am going to work really hard to get that other point oh oh one percent over the top.
0: I guess I really <laughs> should have given you 100%. <laughs> Dahlia, thank you.
1: It was a treat to be with you. Thank you.
0: Tough week for Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg. His social media empire coming under fire as a whistleblower who used to work for Facebook reveals company secrets for the first time in a CBS News 60 Minutes interview and then later on Capitol Hill. Marios Elise Marich, founder of Targeted Technologies a marketing firm that focuses on social policy issues, is with us now. After this testimony on the Hill, what are your initial thoughts?
3: Well, the testimony on the Hill doesn't come as any surprise to any of us who have focused on digital marketing for the last several years. I mean, everything that was said there seems to match uh, the experience that those of us in the field have had. Even though uh, Facebook itself is really closely guarded. So they don't, you know, they don't give us a lot of information to work with. But after you work with it, work with that particular platform and its sister platforms for a while, you kind of get a sense of what works there and what doesn't.
0: In terms of digital marketing, how would you describe Facebook's
3: influence? Facebook is the biggest kid on the block by far. Uh, every every once in a while, somebody says, oh, you know, Facebook is smaller, or not as effective, you know, Instagram or TikTok or whatever, you know, whatever the the new platform is is taking over. But when you look at the actual numbers, Facebook is gigantic and it is still the biggest player. It's still the most powerful player. It's still the most uh, influential player. And apparently it's the most ruthless player.
0: When you say it's the most ruthless player, what do you mean by that?
3: The algorithms, as described by the whistleblower, are clearly the most aggressive model imaginable. So they have taken AI to its unfortunate logical conclusion, and that is divorcing any human uh, judgment or emotion in the pursuit of results, and in this case, uh, profits.
0: So at the outset, you said that this testimony on the Hill really confirmed what a lot of people in your business have known about Facebook over the years. So where does Facebook go from here after this kind of damaging testimony? Do you think that the Facebook brand can absorb the kind of negative publicity that really for a lot of companies would be too difficult to overcome?
3: No, I don't. The Facebook creates publicity. It is a publicity machine. That's its purpose. And it it will never uh, change or regulate itself because of the loss of brand identity. Facebook is pretty much here to stay. And this for them, this is something that the, these are the type of criticisms that they are used to facing. These are the types of criticisms that they're used to combating. And these are the type of criticisms That they're very used to blowing over, but hasn't the stock price suffered? The stock price has suffered, and and I I didn't look at the numbers today, but they clearly suffered yesterday. I'm not sure when you're looking at a trillion dollar company um, how much of a of a loss they actually feel on a day to day basis. They still own a the biggest market share in the social media business, and because of what they control, it's going to be very, very difficult without federal regulation to actually get them to change their ways.
0: Could you explain why Facebook is so powerful? So we know they have all these subscribers, these users. So how are they turning that into money?
3: Advertisers and groups, you know, place ads on, on Facebook and on Instagram. They pay um sometimes they pay per click, sometimes they pay per impression, which means every time somebody sees the ad for a, a certain period of time, you know, a couple seconds, um, you know, then then the advertiser is charged uh for that space. And and so the more the more time that they could get people to stay on the platform and the more interaction that they could create with ads. Um, the more money they make.
0: During Haugen's testimony, what was the most surprising thing in your view?
3: Well, well, for me, I I wasn't surprised, but I'd never really thought through the impact that Instagram is having on young people and especially based on the testimony on young girls. Um, it was quite, uh, quite frankly, it turned my stomach when I thought about it. And I think that while, Uh, You know, all of us in the industry have positions to protect. I think politicians, of course, have been at odds uh, with each other over social media platforms on the issue of how it affects um, the way America's children see themselves and think about themselves. I think that that is the place where we absolutely uh, can unite, need to unite, And I wouldn't be surprised if it finally was a point of consensus and part of the the first changes, regulatory changes that come to Facebook. I think the other aspect of this is that Facebook has too much market share. And between Facebook, WhatsApp and uh, Instagram, these are three separate companies And I think it's time for regulators to step in and break them up.
0: Why do you think that is necessary? I mean, there has been a lot of talk about that for some time, but it hasn't happened. Do you think that this is the time when it will happen because of the testimony this week? Does that lead to a bigger push to break up Facebook and Instagram?
3: I I think that what happened on Monday was a clear demonstration of how much power in the marketplace they actually have. When Facebook went, went down, you know, literally, you know, hundreds of millions of people throughout the world, you know, could not communicate with each other. And uh, small businesses were adversely affected because when Facebook went down, WhatsApp went down and Instagram went down. That 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 clearly showed for several hours it created real financial loss for small businesses. It interrupted commerce in in other parts of the world. You know, there are parts of the world where WhatsApp is the main, you know, the main platform communication that's available. So to have all those three go down, you know, on accident is frightening. But to when you stop and think of it, to have a board of directors be able to shut all those things down at any time they want to, it is absolutely scary.
0: Mario Salise Marich, thank you.
3: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Margaret Sullivan is the media columnist with The Washington Post. And this week, she wrote about Facebook and how, in her view, it is harming society. Margaret, the headline of your column is Facebook is harming our society. Here's a radical solution for reining it in. And you offered your perspective on Facebook and the danger, perhaps, that you think it poses to society. So what do you think is the radical solution for reining in Facebook?
4: So you're right that this comes in the wake of Frances Haugen, the whistleblower's um, testimony and her her, in, the information she shared with the Wall Street Journal and with CBS News um, on 60 Minutes. And, you know, she talks a lot about how Facebook always um, maximizes profit over public interest, which, you know, you might say, well, that is how businesses work. But it's pretty insidious with Facebook because of the particular way they do things and the huge impact they have on society. So my idea which actually is uh, something I, I was talking with a former FCC commissioner, Tom Wheeler, former um, actually chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, and he really feels strongly that we need in the United States a new agency that is far more tech savvy than these fairly hidebound bound. Uh, agencies like the one he was in charge of, uh, the FCC and the FTC, which he feels are pretty much mired in industrial age practices and really not um, able to effectively get at the digital economy, which, as you know, is so dominant now, um, all these platforms, not just Facebook, but but the other biggies, um, that that they need a special kind of expertise. And his idea is that there really needs to be incredible transparency, um, not that Facebook is going to tell the world our, our data, you know, our social security numbers, not that kind of transparency, but the way they do things and the kind of decision-making needs to be uh, out front and on the table, which it absolutely is not now. Facebook is what he called a black box.
0: Well, what do you mean by black box in this instance?
4: Well, he means that the decision making is very, is kept very, very uh, secretive. And while it, you know, for example, the way they construct their algorithm, which results in the rest of us seeing what we see on the social network, um, you, you know, we don't have any way of understanding that. And Mark Zuckerberg is you know, as you know, the founder and the, I guess his title is CEO, um, he's really has incredible power and influence um, with very, very little accountability. Um, This is now a nearly three trillion, no, it's nearly a trillion dollar company and it has nearly 3 billion users around the world. So it is singular in its size and influence, and the effect it has on us when it spreads misinformation, when it feeds people's desire to uh, click on outrageous content and keeps giving them that, you know, at the risk of everything else.
0: I watched a lot of the testimony on the Hill. I've written a book about misinformation. Why is Facebook being singled out here when there are other platforms like Twitter, for example, where you see a ton of misinformation?
4: Sure, but Twitter's not nearly as big and not nearly as dominant. Um, and you know, Facebook, I think, is you know absolutely dwarfs Twitter in terms of its influence. I mean, this is not to say that there isn't misinformation spreading in many places, including on. Uh, you know, cable TV. You know, that's absolutely the case. And uh, and that's a problem, too. But I don't think there's anything quite like Facebook in terms of its uh, influence and dominance. And, it, you know, uh, we would need to be careful when we think about reform, because there are free speech implications here. There are First Amendment implications here. We want to be careful, but we also don't want to just go, oh, well, there's nothing we can do about it. So to your point, this
0: misinformation, it's all over the place.
4: Oh, absolutely. There's no question about that. But a lot of it then spreads on Facebook because people, regular people, take that misinformation that they may have dreamed up or heard from their neighbor or saw somewhere else. And they post it on Facebook where it gets magnified and sent out into the world in this, in this very, um, you know, supercharged way. So, um, you know, and I think that the whistleblowers, you know, major point was that Facebook has the ability to turn down the volume on that stuff so that their algorithm doesn't serve it up as as a sort of top choice Um, but they don't do that because when they do and they actually did do it before the 2020 election when they do it keeps it, it inhibits profitability it keeps people from clicking as much because people like to click on crazy stuff and outrageous stuff so what happens then is that they click less they see fewer ads and as you know, Facebook, you know, I don't think everybody totally understands this, but Facebook is an advertising company. And everybody says, oh, well, it's free. I use it for free. Well, when you're using it for free, there's there's actually a price being paid. Are you a Facebook user? I have a Facebook account. I'm not on it very much, um, but I think, you know, I'm am a I'm the Washington Post media columnist. I write about this stuff. So I'm on social media and I use it. I'm familiar with it. Um, I would even say that I've enjoyed it sometimes. Um, But I also see its dangers. And, you know, the other thing is, is the company that Facebook owns, Instagram, which has such a huge effect on young people because it's used so much by young people. And, you know, they have data, too. Facebook has data, too, that shows that, you know, the harm to young people's mental health that is done by the way certain kinds of things are emphasized.
0: I personally started turning to Instagram because I thought it was less harmful or less negative. But what we're hearing now is that even those Instagram pictures can have a harmful
4: effect. Right. For a lot of young women, particularly girls and young women, um, there's a real effect on body image and how you see yourself and how you compare yourself to other people and um, you know and that that's pretty hard to to regulate or do anything about I think that is totally built in but it's good to know about for parents particularly because you know they may want to take some efforts to to limit their their children's use of it and you know Facebook just decided against something they had been planning which was an Instagram for little kids. Get them early, you know, and get them, and there's a, you know, I was going to say, get them addicted. There's no question that there's an addiction factor here too. Although they call it something like problematic usage. But when they say that, they're talking about addiction. It's a euphemism.
0: What stood out to me from that hearing is how she compared the addiction to social media to an addiction to tobacco.
4: Well, I think the tobacco... um, uh, comparison has come up here, too, because what started to change the way we saw the, the tobacco companies and the cigarette companies and smoking was, you know, when when all of this information came out about what the tobacco companies really knew about how harmful it was and how little they were interested in doing anything about it. So there's a, also there's that comparison, which is, you know, this kind of information can change the world. I think that Frances Haugen the Facebook whistleblower is brave. Um you know she has put herself at risk. She did remove these documents um from her employer and is you know attempting to get SEC whistleblower protection but you never know and um I think that what she did is public is oriented toward the public interest and is it shows courage. Margaret Sullivan, thank you so much for your time. Facebook's global head
0: of safety, Antigone Davis, joined CBSN AM to respond to the testimony. Miss Davis rejects Haugen's analogy between its
2: products and tobacco. Unlike tobacco, uh, Facebook actually adds tremendous value. People use it to grow their small businesses. They grew it, g- use it to create groups to fight things like domestic violence and get safe houses to ab- abuse victims. They use it for creating community for their soccer teams. So I, I think there's that that that. Uh, analogy just really doesn't work. That said, to the issue of time spent on the platform and people who may feel like they're spending too much time on their phones, I think we probably all feel that way sometimes. Um, we've actually built tools that enable you to... See the amount of time that you've spent to set a daily reminder to to uh, step away from from the from the platform. And actually, we're working on uh, something called take a break, particularly um, to address that issue when we see people may be on for a long period of time.
0: Davis also denies that the Facebook algorithm is solely designed to keep you glued to your screens.
2: So our algorithm is designed to connect you with things that you've shown an interest in and things that you've engaged with, but it, it takes in numerous signals. So we also have components of the system that actually reduce, for example, clickbait, which is something that does get people engaged, but it's not actually positive content. And so we, ha- we put in a number of, of different, different signals. We're really optimizing for a positive experience for people.
0: Ann Davis concludes that having a negative experience on social media is counterproductive to the long-term financial success of Facebook?
2: Well, because it's actually extraordinarily short-sighted. So if you think about somebody's experience on the platform, if they're having a very negative experience, at some point they're going to turn away from that from that negative experience. So it, to suggest that we'd optimize towards something negative for the long-term value of business just doesn't actually, it is illogical, it doesn't make sense. And to just give you an example of kinds of changes that we've made, made to ensure that people are having a positive experience, we adjusted our algorithm to basically optimize for meaningful social interactions. So, for example, if I engage with my mother-in-law's knitting posts a lot, I may see more of that kind of of content. We did that knowing that that actually would reduce the number of hours that people spent on our platform. It did reduce the number of hours by about 50 million hours a day, but we did it because in the... uh, it creates a better experience for well-being. And in the long run, a positive experience is a much better business model.
0: That is it for this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcast. Also, you can follow me on Twitter, Jeff CBS, and on Instagram, Jeff Begay6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is How America Changed Forever. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing.